Hi. I hope everyone is safe and at home. My name is Elizabeth Roberts. Um, I am a partner at Roberts and Shower. I'm pleased to be with you today. Um, I'm going to talk with you very briefly about modifications. Um, we want to keep this light, uh, informative, and offer you truly basic advice um, regarding the how-tos. Um, we each are touching on uh, topics uh, separately. I'm going to discuss modifications, then we'll discuss contempts, and then we're going to discuss uh, qualified domestic relations orders. Um, there will be time to ask questions, um, so ask away. Uh, you can ask each person directly, and the others are going to field questions uh, for the speaker. So you're able to modify um, any term that has been uh, merged into an agreement. A merged term is one that is typically child-related, uh, and hasn't survived. I tell my clients that merge, you can re remember as begins with an M, remains modifiable, also begins with an M. Survive terms, begins with an S, stays the same, also begins with an S. It may sound uh, silly, but uh, it's one way that you can remember, and it's also a way to help your clients remember. It's very important as you draft that um, you remember to also explain the terms merger and survival to your clients as well. Um, so if you're looking at a separation agreement and you look at the boilerplate, look for what is merged and what is survived, survived and know that the merging terms can be modified. It is only in the rarest circumstances that surviving terms could be modified. And I'm not going to, because we don't have time, uh, discuss the, uh, the circumstances in which surviving terms could be modified. For, um, for child support, and um, generally, you would need to uh, look to the Morales case and that is Morales v. Morales. I'll give you the citation. It's 464 Mass 507. And generally, anytime um, there's an inconsistency with the, with the guidelines, um, between the existing order and the guidelines, you're able to seek a modification. Um, my rule of thumb, and what was the rule of thumb with the older guidelines, is if there's a been a 20% change in income. That's not a hard and fast rule, um, but I think that, you know, if somebody's income has changed by $10 a week, would I rush into court? No, and I think that uh, judges would frown upon that. Um, so you want to look for enough of a change that a judge would uh, believe that it was worth the court's time. And certainly, if attorneys are involved, worth the attorney's fees. Um, for all other modifications, the standard is a material and substantial change. 
Um, you might ask yourself, well, what is a material and substantial change? <laughs> Some of us would say that you can make almost anything into a material and substantial change. I'm sure that judges would not want to hear me say that. Um, but, you know, for custody cases, many lawyers have cited uh, what a children's needs are as a material and substantial change. Perhaps those needs have changed over time. Um, maybe a child has um, a need that, for instance, would require him or her to change schools or where placement uh, with different, because of IEP needs, for instance, uh, would, would make a better school system in, in the other parent's home um, more suitable. You might also find that a child is expressing, an older child in particular, is expressing a desire to spend more time at one parent's home than the other. Um, I've had cases where the choppiness of a schedule um, has caused a desire on the part of a parent to raise the red flag and say that it's in the children's best interest at this point. Um, they're older and they can handle more time apart and due to their age and the choppiness of the schedule, that's a material substantial change that warrants a modification. Um, it also may be that, for instance, parents have moved further apart. Um, there's been an increase in the parents' work, a decrease in the parents' work. Um, those are the types of changes that may, in a certain case, be material. In order to file a complaint for modification, you should always first turn to the court forms. And just like in a divorce case, there are forms for contested cases and forms for uncontested cases. So for a joint modification, you're going to look at Supplemental Rule 412, and you can file a joint modification. If there are financial terms that are being modified, you will always have to file a financial statement with the court form. And there's a handy checklist on the court's website um, that will tell you every single thing that you need to file um, with your joint, I, I typically call it a joint petition, but your joint modification form. One of the things that can be frustrating is that from time to time, courts operate differently. And when I say courts, I mean county to county. And it has been my experience, for instance, that um, what you may view as a very immaterial change is actually immaterial and non-financial. Um, a clerk reading the simple uh, modification agreement finds is financial in nature and requires uh, financial statements and your entire packet will be rejected. So for instance, um, 
even though property division terms are surviving by agreement parties may modify those terms so in this office we recently agreed to take retirement funds from a different account than was in the body of the agreement originally it was a very simple change rather than this 401k we're going to do the equalization payment from a different 401k and it was for various reasons but the sum and substance of was was the same the money transfer would be the same amount we just come from a different account because it didn't change the terms no financial statements were submitted granted this was a change that occurred a year after the judgment of divorce these parties had failed to uh, do their quadro on their own and they were coming to this firm post-judgment and we had not handled the divorce case so the entire joint modification was rejected because we did not submit financial statements so we had to go back to the parties and, and request that both of them complete financial statements and resubmit the entire package we could have debated with the court in this particular county whether or not that was necessary it would have taken more time arguably to do that so um, my advice is, is that you pick up the phone and that you call each individual court you write down the name of the person that you spoke with you make them your contact person for that particular joint modification make them your friend and um, use that person as your contact if there is an issue on that joint modification um, with regard to a contested complaint for modification you know you have the opportunity um, to to get a retroactive release potentially so the sooner uh, you file it and um, you serve it you have that now we could all debate whether or not you're actually going to get retroactive release from the court but you do have that as leverage so um, filing your complaint and serving your complaint is important um, you should know that and I should go back and say that when you file uh, the financial worksheet uh, the financial statement you also need to file the child support guidelines anytime you're changing child support and I should have mentioned that but um, you when you're filing the complaint for modification that's contested um, you simply just file the complaint form initially um, there is more information about the general complaint form on the courts website and a similar checklist uh, of court forms also on the website for that form you must use the court form um, when when you are filing these um, there there are interesting questions of jurisdiction that are raised when the parties or a single party moves outside of Massachusetts and Massachusetts does have um, custody um, jurisdictional custody rules that are unique 
What I would say is that you need to carefully consider jurisdiction before you file a modification when one or both parties do not reside here. However, you should not count out that Massachusetts is not the place to file. Um, if neither party lives in Massachusetts and there is no other place to file your complaint for modification, Massachusetts may very well be the place to file. The other thing you should consider when filing a custody-related modification where the child has lived away from Massachusetts is that even if the child has lived away from here, the other state must accept jurisdiction in many, many cases. And Massachusetts, if it issued the original order, may have emergency jurisdiction. So there may be some cases where it would still be appropriate to file in Massachusetts. Jurisdiction is um, a tricky thing. And so before you advise a client or a potential client that there's absolutely no way that you could file here, um, it, it, I, would, I would encourage you to say, you know, let me get back to you and to take a step back and think about it. I, I do that myself. Um, I often have to think about it. We interestingly had a debate about removal cases and whether or not you could file a removal case um, on uh, a joint, joint modification. And what I would say is that I think it depends on whether or not both parties are represented and what county you're in. So uh, call, call the court. Um, and that's usually the answer to any good question you have, call the court. And they may give you different answers each time you call. So that's all I have. I'm happy to answer any questions on modifications, which we can do now or later. It doesn't look like we have any questions yet in the Q&A, but if they come up throughout the program and if there's time at the end, we'll all still be here until one o'clock so we can, um, can make sure we get, your, get to your questions. My name is Cindy Palmquist. I am the Managing Director at the Volunteer Lawyers Project. Um, I've been at the VLP for six years. And prior to um, the VLP, I had a private practice that focused on family law and probate matters. Um, the section that I'm going to cover is contempt. So contempt is how you enforce an order. And it's good to remind ourselves of the definition of contempt because if we don't remind ourselves, most likely the judges will but it is a very specific thing. It is a willful violation of a clear and unequivocal order. That means that when you're drafting agreements, you wanna pay attention to the language and make sure that your agreement is going to be enforceable. It's also strategy. Sometimes you may specifically choose to draft something in a somewhat vague manner because you feel that it better um, protects your client written that way. That's a conversation that you have to have with your client, but you also have to recognize that even if your order is not clear and unequivocal, if the other side decides to file the contempt anyway, if the court finds that there's been a material change in circumstances, they can modify underneath a contempt. 
by use, you know, with that vehicle. Um, the, the other thing that you want to make sure when you're drafting a complaint for is that you have the order that you're referencing so that you can use the exact language um, on the complaint itself. When filing a contempt, whoever is filing that case becomes the moving party. So even if they are the defendant in the underlying case that resulted in the judgment, they will be the plaintiff on the complaint for contempt. And I know that it seems so obvious, but having been in the court many times and seeing the forms have the wrong parties listed as the plaintiff, I always just like to point it out that this is a new complaint, the complaint for contempt. And so whoever is signing it, that's the moving party. Um, there's no filing fee for a contempt. However, the court will charge $5 for the summons and the, the complaint has to be served. So there'll be the cost of service as well. Um, on the complaint itself, there are two boxes at the top that say criminal or civil, and people often question, I don't know which one of these to check, is it criminal, is it civil? It doesn't have anything to do with whether, you know, a party can be arrested or put in jail. It's, that actually can happen with either. It more has to do with what are you asking the court to do in terms of relief? So in a civil contempt, you're, you're asking the court to enforce the order. In a criminal contempt, they can be punished for not following the order. There's some level of punishment either way. You're, you're saying to the court, this is what you ordered. This person hasn't done it. Now we have to file this complaint in order to get you to enforce the order that was already made. Because of that, the plaintiff can also seek an award of attorney's fees for having to ask the court to intervene and, uh, and get the defendant to do something that they were already obligated to do. Um, it's important to note that in Mass General Laws Chapter 215, Section 34A, where it talks about attorney's fees in a contempt, it does say that the court shall order attorney's fees. However, many judges don't. Um, but you should still ask for them if you have to file a complaint for contempt. And if you do, you'll need to um, prepare an affidavit of counsel that shows all of the time that you spent having to bring this complaint forward and what your hourly rate is, etc. Those records will allow the court to order the attorney's fees. The defendant has an opportunity to file an answer with the court and they can assert any general or substantive defenses to the complaint for contempt. Um, it's important to note that there are due process requirements in contempt actions. And if it is a criminal contempt proceeding, the defendant does have a right to the counsel because he, may, he or she may be, or they may be imprisoned um, as a result of the hearing. Um, there's, there's also many cases in which um, the court will want to know whether the alleged violation is willful. Because again, getting back to that original definition, a willful violation of a clear and unequivocal order. And sometimes the court won't be able to find that the defendant's violation was willful. Um, however, they may issue an order under the contempt, but not enter a guilty finding. That frequently will happen. In a contempt, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff to prove by clear and convincing evidence that the violation has happened. So 
their burden is one, there was a prior judgment or order that is valid. Two, that the defendant knew about that judgment or order. And three, that the defendant willfully disobeyed that order. On the defendant's side, once the plaintiff proves those elements, the burden will shift to the defendant to prove either compliance with the judgment or order or substantive defenses. Um, oftentimes, contempts are filed um, as it relates to payment, like payment of child support or spousal support or something like that. Um, if you represent somebody who is the payor, it's important to stress that they should not be making any payments in cash because then it can be very difficult for them to prove that they made those payments. Um, inability to pay, sometimes that can be a successful defense depending on the judge. They may say that it's not a willful violation because there was no ability to pay. However, the judge will likely point out that the person who didn't have an ability to pay may have wanted to file a complaint for modification prior to being brought in on the complaint for contempt. And then when you're asking the court for relief under a contempt, what you're asking is, you know, can they enforce the judgment? Can they modify the arrears? Um, do, does, the, does the court really need to change the parenting plan as a result of the contempt because it wasn't being followed? Um, can there be, you know, a wage assignment um, order in a child support case where prior to that, the parties were paying each other directly. Um, you know, it, you just want to think about if you're going in on a contempt, is there something that the court can do? Um, oftentimes you want to have a conversation with a client. The other piece that I think is worth mentioning about a contempt is that if somebody is not following the parenting plan, meaning that they are not allowing the parenting time to take place. So one parent is being denied their parenting time. It is very common for those contempts to be filed and for the judge to look at the case, determine whether they should make, um, schedule some makeup time for the lost parenting time, remind the custodial parent or whomever that they need to comply with the court order. However, um, at a I find that oftentimes at um, a pro se clinic that, that um, we ran you know, bef before the courts were closed to the public in Suffolk, we would get clients who would come in looking to file a complaint for contempt on the reverse, meaning that they wanted to force the parent to exercise their parenting time. And those contempts are very difficult and generally the court will not order somebody to actually take the parenting time that they've been ordered but have elected not to, not to exercise. And then that can be really difficult because parties will say, well, if I'm supposed to follow the order and they're supposed to have parenting time every other weekend, I make my plans to work an extra shift or whatever it is because they're supposed to have parenting time, but they never come on Friday when they're supposed to get the child and they, they don't, um, they don't pick up the child and I'm sort of left with, you know, having to come up with alternate arrangements. So I want to file a contempt so that the judge can order them to have their parenting time every Friday as they're supposed to. That makes sense. All of it makes sense, but rarely is the judge going to do something about that. And the reason is because if a parent is electing not to exercise parenting time, 
think the judges say, we're not sure it's necessarily in the child's best interest for us to force somebody to be a parent. And in that case, if that conversation had come up, I might recommend rather than trying to file a contempt to force someone to exercise parenting time, maybe look at a modification because the change in circumstance could be that the person that the parent is not exercising the parenting time and maybe it would be easier to do the modification and clean up what the schedule is so that the person, you know, can pick up that extra shift or whatever it is. Um, also, it's really important to keep in mind what Elizabeth mentioned in the beginning, which is that almost every court, county to county, operates a bit differently. So the thing to do is to call the court, have a conversation, make a good friend there. It's, it's really good to, um, to get in touch with people at the court and to you know get to know them. And they will be willing to take your calls and and um, you can ask your questions there. So the third, the third um, section of the presentation for today is going to be done by Karen and it will address quadros, unless there's any questions come up. I think that somebody just made a comment. Um, I don't think it was actually a question. So uh, thank you, thank you. Okay. So I am going to talk about quadros today. Um, I will share with you that when I first started practicing, um, the thought of quadros terrified me. I'm just going to share my screen real quick so I can pull up my PowerPoint. Um, and I thought I was working with a population where I wasn't going to have to deal with any um, major issues that ha um, have to do with uh, retirement benefits, but it turns out that even though I was representing marginalized communities um, and my clients didn't have money, their partners certainly did. Um, so to my surprise, uh, we have dealt a lot with property division, retirement plans, and quadros. So I do have a PowerPoint and I am going to just start this for you. And if you guys can let me know if you could see that. Okay, perfect. All right, so if you remember nothing else about quadros from this training today, um, do not attempt to do this yourself. These can be extremely complicated, nuanced areas. Um, and I can tell you after 20 plus years of practicing, our office hires people to do our quadros for us. I know that there are some attorneys out there that may do their own quadros, but these are people with specialized training. Um, so again, if you remember nothing else, I strongly recommend that you hire um, an outside firm or an attorney who actually specializes in doing quadros. What is a quadro? A quadro is a qualified domestic relations order, which is essentially any judgment or decree by the court that um, distributes property in by way of child support, alimony, um, spousal support, um, and you can also have dependents who receive these benefits as well. Um, essentially, it's just a way to divvy up assets, um, such as a 401k or a pension plan. But there are certain assets that even though the parties have agreed that they will divide, um, the participant of that pension or asset can't divide it without specialized permission, and that goes through a qualified domestic relations order. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about assets because I think it's important to understand what you're dealing with 
prior to um, prior to drafting a quadro um, or negotiating what should be in a quadro. So um, a retirement asset is simply an asset set aside um, that the party will get upon either their termination of employment or typically when they retire. Um, either the asset has a present value, but you're not able to withdraw it, or, um, and if it does have a present value, typically you have pretty significant financial consequences to taking the money out. Um, there's employment provided retirement assets um, where the person who receives it gets it monthly or year, yearly when the employment is terminated. And then there's non-employer provided assets, which is essentially a lump sum that can be with, um, withdrawn from the account. And I just wanna sort of break that up a little bit so that we understand. And again, this is a very um, general quick overview, but there are just certain concepts that um, you should definitely read into and look up on, um, look up. So the types of retirement assets are really important. And you learn the type of retirement assets through discovery. Um, you wanna make sure as a practice tip that you not only understand the retirement assets that people currently have, for example, with their current employer, you also wanna look into any retirement assets that were accumulated prior to their current employment. Um, so there are no, um, there are two kinds of retirement assets, a defined, well, actually there are a few kinds. The most um, common are a defined benefit plan and a defined contribution plan. And there's two significant differences with these two plans. Um, with a defined benefit plan, think of it as sort of everybody putting into the pot, right? This plan can still be divided as a marital asset, but it's commingled, so it's not as if you get a statement that tells you the value of that plan. There's no present cash value, right? So um, typically, the defined benefit plan, the payments are distributed when you retire, when you leave your employment, as opposed to a defined contribution plan. And that's very similar, similar to a bank account. You get a statement, you know exactly what the value of that is. Um, there's a separate account for each employee, right? Each employee has sort of a piece of the pie, if you will. Um, and the balance is generally ascertainable at the time that you divide the assets. Uh, the types of accounts that typically fit within a defined contribution plan are your typical 401ks, 403bs, um, and these plans, again, they can be cashed out, so they're treated a little differently. Both plans, however, are considered part of the marital assets. You want to be careful of the hybrid plan, and these are plans that go to civil servants and state employees because they're, they're similar to the first plan in that everybody sort of puts into the pot, but unlike the first plan, they can actually take money out, right? They're still considered um, a part of property division, but it's important that you know that each individual plan so that you know how they can be divided when it comes to a quadro. Um, just a practice tip when it comes to contributory plans or cash value state retirements, some folks make the mistake of putting in a son a financial statement of having a cash value. Just be wary of that. There is a case that I cite here, Brower v. Brower. It doesn't have a, a financial value. It doesn't have a current dollar value. And you just want to be careful of that. <clears throat> I will say too that if anyone's interested in 
um, the slides. It's just sort of a condensed presentation of tips you should know. I'm happy to share it with anyone. Also, um, Social Security benefits, um, they cannot be quadroed, right? They can be considered when you're talking about dividing up marital assets, but they cannot be quadroed. Now, when do you use a quadro? Um, and if my co-presenters um, can just let me know about my time, because I'm not looking at that, but I will zip through this. Um, when parties get divorced, we have what's called separation agreements, divorce agreements, um, and they will divide up assets among the spouses, right? The division of certain retirements requires this extra step because even though the parties may have agreed to divide it up, um, the person who receives the retirement asset doesn't have the authority to divide it up. And that's when quadros come into place. The Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, we call it ERISA, has certain regulations for private employee benefit plans. And these plans have to meet those regulations in order to be a qualified plan. Um, it does not regulate governmental plans, church plans, um, other sort of nonprofit type organization plans, employment compensation. Um, they do include pensions, stock purchase, profit sharing, and plans of that nature. Um, again, the person who is the recipient of the plan, they can't assign that role. They can agree to give it away, but they can't assign it. No benefits will be pay paid to the other party until a quadro is submitted by an administrator. Um, just as a practice note, IRAs are exempt from ERISA and not subject to quadros. Um, Tax-sheltered annuities are exempted from ERISA. Um, and if annuity is created by a non-government employee, it can meet the standards of a quadro. So again, you just have to really understand what type of retirement plan um, you are working with. Now, deferred compensation, pl compensation plan, those are typically um, in large corporations, and those are plans that it's kind of like a secured uh, loan, if you will. And so those cannot be divided by quadros. Um, and I do have a, a few practice tips. So again, we hire people to do our quadros for us. A, a large percentage of the legal community hires folks to do quadros for them. Um, and my colleagues can talk more about that if they're brave enough to do their own quadros, Godspeed. Um, but just remember that in order to do a quadro, we have an ethical obligation to our clients and it requires legal knowledge, skill, and thoroughness of preparation reasonably necessary to present, um, represent that person. So just make sure you understand um, what you're dealing with and it always helps to um, hire someone. Sometimes you even have to hire someone to um, put a valuation on a particular um, pension plan. So just keep that in mind. Um, make sure you know the current retirement assets and the previous assets that are not covered by um, ERISA. So there may be retirement plans that aren't covered. Just make sure that you have an understanding of everything that needs to go in the pot. And when you're drafting a quadro, you also want to make sure that you have the right name. So if you just say parties will divide wife's retirement plan, that's really vague. It's really broad. Um, when it comes time to a modification or a contempt, that's really not a clear and unequivocal order. You want to say they will divide the, <clears throat> excuse me, retirement plan 
that wife accumulated from Staples Incorporated XYZ. You want to make sure that you're really specific about the plan. And this is information that you will need to give to someone, even if you're hiring someone to do the quadro. Um, you have to have a clear date for division. And again, this is something that um, people make mistakes with all the time, especially when you're sort of at the finish line of trying to settle um, an agreement and you have the parties willing to agree. It's these little sort of details that might be forgotten. So when is the date for division? Is it at the time the parties separated? Is it at the time that the divorce is final? Is it at the time that the person actually receives the pension? Again, this is something you work out in the agreement, but you wanna make sure that you include it. Um, gains and losses. So some retirement plans, you know, it fluctuates with the market. market. You don't have to be an expert on how it fluctuates or how much it will or gain or will lose, but you do have to consider that when you're contemplating a quadro, right? Who is going to accept the gains? Who's going to accept the losses? And just make sure that you consider that when you're coming up with your um, divorce agreement. Who will draft the quadro? Are, you know, is, is the wife or husband going to be um, responsible for drafting a quadro or is the other spouse, wife, husband, um, going to be responsible for drafting the quadro? Are you going to hire someone jointly to um, draft the quadro? And make sure you specify who's going to pay for it, right? Who's going to pay the attorney? Who's going to pay the fees? Um, are they going to be um, divided out? Is it going to come from a marital asset? You want to make sure you contemplate that as well. You also want to make sure that you draft the quadro in a timely manner because you never know when somebody's going to be separated from their employer. So if you think, you know, this is a relatively young couple, they're going to be in this corporation for 20 years, I have time, um, then that is a, a bad assumption to make. And it also subjects you um, to an ethical complaint or malpractice. You want to make sure that you have the quadro filed with the corporation or company so that they know when this party separates, they have an obligation to give a portion of that money to another person, whoever that other person is. Um, I typically, if I know that I'm going to have a quadro, I'll start looking for somebody while I'm litigating and we'll start that process before the divorce is even finalized. Um, some plans, some companies actually will provide you with a quadro that has specified language. Um, two things about this. One, I still wouldn't do the quadro without hiring somebody to look over the terms. Um, it may seem like you can save your client money, or if you're working with a population who is marginalized and indigent, it may seem like a good idea. But again, there's so many nuances to this process. I would still have someone look it over, even if the corporation gives you the quadro to fill out. The second thing is you want to make sure that that language in the quadro actually matches the language in your divorce agreement, right? So you can't... Um, enforce something unless the language is consistent with that. And that is the end of my presentation. So how did I do for time? Was I good? You did a great job. Okay, perfect. Um, Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. So until I'm fragile. <laughs> so what um, what do you do if there's a loan taken against the 401k? Yep. yep. 
So that's really important. First and foremost, you have to inquire whether there was a loan taken for the 401k. And it really depends on the circumstances. I know that's a really lawyer answer, but it does. So for example, if you take a loan out and that benefited the family, right, then that would be, that would, might be considered a marital debt, right? If a party took a loan out, and we've seen this, they take a loan against their retirement that the other person doesn't know about, arguably that should count against the person who took out the loan, not against the person who was on the receiving end. So one, I think it's important to make sure that you understand if there were loans taken out. Two, what, what happened with the money? Was it used to pay off marital debt? Was it used to you know, pay for um, camp expenses? Was it used for college? Or was it used you know, to pay for a wedding? Whatever the situation may be, then that's going to be a marital enterprise. Was it taken out after the party separated but were still married? Um, in that case, I would argue that that shouldn't count against if I'm representing the person receiving that benefit against um, their portion of that. Did that answer your question? That answers my question. You have a question from the audience, but I just wanted to follow up on that. I once sure. had a quadro drafter that we had paid put within the body of the quadro that the loan would be attributed to my client. And so it reminded me as a practitioner, you must read what is drafted. So don't assume that the neutral that you have hired to draft your quadro is neutral. Or, or maybe some of the language that they assume is okay, maybe said a better way, a nicer way. That the language that they assume is okay, um, it might, might not be okay for you. You know, it was our intention in that case that the loan be spread across both parties and it be attributed, you know, in the division. Um, so people can do that. But can the, I just add to that just yeah. a little bit? When we do quadros, I will tell you that as a matter of practice, I will go through that document in the same way I go through a, a separation agreement or a divorce agreement. And think about the colloquy that the judge asks, right? Did you read it? Did you read it line by line? Do you understand your obligations? Do you understand the benefits? Did you have your attorney explain the terms to you? Are you comfortable with it? Right. This is still a part of the divorce agreement, right? So you are ethically responsible to make sure that your client knows what they're signing. And if they, there is a misunderstanding, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. And the other thing I would say is that now that people are, are using the word recession, um, it, it reminds me of I, I only get new jobs during a recession. For, I can't see all of the participants' faces to see if they're smiling about that. But when I uh, got one of my first law jobs, um, I recall a case where uh, an agreement that I reviewed did not include the words gains or losses. And oh. so you ask yourself, well, why does that matter? It matters because the recession at that time was so bad that the account then did not contain enough money to cover the sum certain that was supposed to be transferred. And that is now practice. Um, I do see the question whether or not the quadro would be considered alimony paid out. So, a quad, so there are different things that quadros could be used for, right? Child support, alimony, 
if you designate a retirement benefit as alimony, then the person receiving the alimony, that's taxable income. The person who is giving the alimony, that's taken away from their income, right? So if I am the recipient of alimony, I have to put on my taxes, this is income, and I'm paying taxes on that amount. I hope that answered the question. Did you want but, to clarify? But under, um, so a couple of follow-up things on that. So generally, property division transfers are non-taxable. So unless you right. designate it, it, it will not be taxable. And under Trump's um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, alimony is no longer deductible by the payor and taxable uh, to the payee. So um, the, the, the taxability, you, you know, you could see some, some pre-Tax uh, Cuts and Jobs Act agreements before you where that is the case and where people right. have used, particularly if you're seeing these pre-ARA cases where you have older folks who are paying alimony from their retirement assets because that's, that's pre-Trump. Yeah, those are pre-Trump rules. And then there's post-Trump rules. And it may change too. So I think also a great practice tip is to make sure, um, I'm sorry, Elizabeth, did I cut you off? I'm so sorry, go ahead. Just to make sure that you understand. Um, and I hate to you know hire more experts on a case because you wanna be conscious of your client's funds, but at the same time, you wanna do your due diligence um, there are times that we've also had um, a CPA do a tax analysis to make sure that we're covering everything and that they do know those nuances that have come in. I mean, one thing that I've done before is to use a quadro to do an alimony buyout, you know, you know and so you can use retirement funds for, a, you know, a lump sum alimony buyout. That is not something you want to do without expert advice. Yes. There are there. Let's just look at the questions here. Oh, 100% clear. Thank you. You're welcome. Are there any other questions? Well, I'm happy, um, you know, my, the BBA has my email address. Um, I'm also happy to um, say that it's E. Roberts, so it's my first initial last name. You gotta put it in the chat for people. Oh yeah. E. At Roberts. At Roberts Sauer, which is my law partner's last name, S-A-U-E-R.com. You always can email me with questions or call me. Um, and I know that Karen's always made herself available to me um, and other people at the BBA um, when we've had questions for her too. So um, it's always good to call on other people when you have questions and not to guess. <laughs> and certainly guessing has gotten me into trouble. <laughs> yeah. Just gonna write mine in here too. long. I'm sorry. And thank you, Elizabeth, for bringing those um, points up. It's hard because we want to give you sort of a snapshot and not put too much information in front of you, but um, those are really important points to make. 
Oh, and you know, the, I did want to bring up, sorry, one more point on, um, because there's some interesting things that have come up with alimony modifications. Yes. As you are completing your financial statements right now on a divorce, you know, for, for a divorce, consider that your client may want to get a modification in the future. So always be thinking about if somebody needed a modification in the future, what is the work that I'm doing right now? What impact would that have? Because under the Young case, right. if somebody needed to, to seek alimony in the future, a judge would look back at the divorce financial statement and they would be limited to the needs that they demonstrated at the time of divorce. So being dismissive because you've reached a full agreement, which is so tempting for us all, um, to say, oh, well, just give me a quick estimate on this line item or that. You can't do that anymore. Nope. You really can't. And especially if there's like health issues that might be dormant um, and it's a progressive type of illness and their <laughs> needs are increased, then you have to contemplate that as well when you're contemplating alimony. You know, it's worth even putting a footnote. We anticipate that these yeah. costs will increase. So you can cover your tail by footnoting heavily. Um, so always keep that in mind. That's my last two cents. And there's a question. I knew I could generate. Oh, it's a comment. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Well, I hope everyone has a pleasant afternoon and enjoys the weather. And I hope everyone is safe and stays safe and all of your loved ones are safe as well.